This is NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Kia Miakonatis. We're wrapping up this week's collection of books with what I'm calling Family Matters Friday. We've got two books focusing on the ties that bind and the complexities that emerge as we age, including a novel about wealthy sisters in Brooklyn trying to make sense of their privilege. We'll get into that book in a little bit. But first, a man raised inside the resounding grief of his sister's death finds the love he always wished for when he marries into a family of four sisters. However, the shadows of his past begin to reemerge when he and his wife become new parents. The plot unfolds in Anne Napolitano's new novel, Hello, Beautiful. Here she is with NPR's Scott Simon. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. Uh, but the truth is, uh, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. William Waters finds a missing piece of life when he meets Julia Potavano in college and marries into a family of four sisters. He'd grown up feeling that his parents had only one child. And in Anne Napolitano's memorable phrase, it wasn't him. The embrace of sisters, often comforting, sometimes stifling, forgiving, forgetting, and going on, is at the heart of her new novel, Hello, Beautiful. And Napolitano, author of the bestseller Dear Edward, which is now an Apple Plus series, joins us from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us about William. He has to grow up with a darkness, doesn't he? Yes. His three-year-old sister dies the same week that he is born. And his parents are so heartbroken that when they look at him, they only feel their own pain. So they really stop looking at him. And he has very little attention and love for the rest of his childhood does eventually find achievement and recognition in basketball. He winds up going to Northwestern, where he meets Julia. Uh, I will note the Wildcats are better than usual this year, but they're not a traditional basketball powerhouse, let's put it that way. Does knowing Julia give him another kind of recognition, too? Yes, she is a powerful, ambitious, self-directed, vibrant young woman. And she sort of takes him in hand and tells him what to do, because she has strong aspirations for her own life. She has an idea of the husband that she wants to be married to, and he fits the mold, and he's also very moldable, and he's very happy to be told what to do. So it works out well initially for both of them. And tell us about her sisters. You have uh, Sylvie and then uh, and then the twins, Cecilia and Emmeline. Yes. Um, so Sylvie's only 10 months younger than Julia, and she is a voracious reader, and she works in the local library putting herself through college. And she is a dreamer. She has this dream that she's going to find the great love affair, a sort of once-in-a-generation love story, and that is her dream. Um, and Emmeline and Cecilia are a little bit younger, and they are twins. And Cecilia is an artist, and Emmeline is a nurturer. She takes care of everybody. How challenging is it to write four characters? who appear again and again and make them different enough to tell apart, but also enough alike to be sisters. 
Well, that's part of what fascinates me about sisters. Um, when I was growing up, my best friend Leah, her mother had six sisters that would come in and out of the house all the time, and they had slightly different versions of the same face, and they seemed more themselves when they were in the same room together than they did when they were separated, and that was completely fascinating to me. <laughs> so it was really like an exciting and fun challenge to create sisters who were that close, but also very strongly rooted in their own selves. Um, I think that's a challenging relationship because you're so close and so strong-willed and so different, but it can be like the deepest and most rewarding of relationships, you know, unless you're challenged, which unfortunately or fortunately, the sisters are challenged. And it's perfectly okay if readers detect a debt to little women in your novel. It is. I I actually didn't intend that. Um, it was only once I'd created or met the sisters, and they were having a conversation in, in the scene that I was writing about which March sister they were most like. And I was like, oh, yes, of course. Like, it's four sisters, just like the March girls. And Lori in Little Women is a, a character from the outside who peers into the March family window and wants to be in there. And so does William for the Padovano sisters. Yeah. William and Julia, without giving away too much of the story, have a daughter, Alice, and then a, a darkness begins to envelop William, or, or has it always been there? I think it had always been there. I think basketball kept it at bay, and he, you know, reaches the end of his basketball career, and it sort of begins to sink him, and he enters adulthood with its, you know, myriad responsibilities um, and calls upon him to sort of stand up straighter, and he finds that he's unable to. Yeah. How does William begin to treat his daughter? I think he has struggles to look at his daughter in a similar way that his parents struggled to look at him. I think often the sort of traumas that afflict us in our youth end up playing out in various ways as we grow up, even though it's the last thing that we want to have happen. Mm -hmm. um, and William wants nothing but the best for his daughter, but he has a lot of fear at the same time. Do we inherit only the good stuff? No. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately not. I think the fault lines that run through our parents often run into us, even if we weren't alive when those fault lines were created. And they become part of our um, DNA and our behaviors. Even if we're trying as hard as we can to run away from them, they are, in that instance, still shaping our lives. The same thing happens with the Padovano family. Rose, the mother of the four girls, got pregnant before she was married, which ended up being, you know, a wonderful thing for their family, but she does not want that for her girls. And she ends up, you know, pushing them almost to the brink so that what she sees as her failures, she almost makes happen again in the next generation, too. How much of the, may I ask, family dynamics do you plot out, say, on index cards? And, and how much come to you in the process of writing? The first year while I'm thinking about the book, I don't let myself write, and I only think and plan and research and um, take notes. But still, there's probably only about five things that I know are going to happen when I start writing the book. The rest of it I discover. Help us understand what that feels like. Well, to me, it's it's kind of like being a reader. It, it is an act of discovery. Um, when the book starts, William is this lonely, sad, brokenhearted little boy, and I want to find out if he can be okay after the childhood that he had. And I really wasn't sure. So I had to walk through line after line, scene after scene, interaction after interaction, and be like, is this true? Like, is this how it would feel? And and slowly that charts his course through the story and through the novel. And I'm right there with him, hoping that 
we're going to get to a place where he's all right, but not sure whether that is going to be true or not. And that's part of the tension for me and keeps me writing and keeps me anxious. Forgive me for not knowing, but do you have sisters, brothers? Yeah, I have a sister, a brother, and a half-sister. No matter what issues might wind up dividing siblings, is there a is there still a special closeness that just is, is in no other way emulated? Yes. I think because you grow up, obviously, from the very beginning and you know each other inside and out and you know all of each other's embarrassing secrets and worst moments and you know each other at each stage of your lives, there's just a – that's like a rooting system that runs all the way down into the earth. And so even if you try to walk away from each other, I think there's always that possibility and even encouragement to walk back because the roots don't go away. And Napolitano, her novel, Hello, Beautiful. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing, like not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. <laughs> dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Climate change fuels hurricanes. China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterflies have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. A stately brownstone in Brooklyn Heights is the setting for this next novel, Pineapple Street. Author Jenny Jackson tells the story of its occupants, the Stockton family, and the three sisters wrestling with what to make of their social status and generational wealth. Here she is with NPR's Scott Simon. Pineapple Street, the novel, not the actual street in Brooklyn Heights, is a comedy of manners set among people who live in storied limestone homes, have prenups, set out tablescapes, summer between the Clintons and the Obamas, do good sometimes conspicuously so, send their children to fancy schools, have their family names on libraries, try to keep up and keep current, and be something to someone. That last can be the hardest of all. Pineapple Street is the debut novel from Jenny Jackson, Vice President and Executive Editor at Alfred A. Knopp. She joins us now from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, and that was such a wonderful introduction. Well, I, I loved the novel. Tell us about the three main characters, because the novel follows the lives of what I'll refer to as the three Stocktons. Sure. So the novel is the story of three women in the Stockton family. Darley is the oldest sister, and Darley is a mother of two young children, and she's given up her career in finance to take care of her kids and is grappling with what that means for her. And then second, we have Georgiana, who is the baby of the Stockton family. And Georgiana is just this delightful brat. Georgiana is spoiled but doesn't realize she's spoiled. She works at a not-for-profit and she thinks that this means that she's really doing good in the world, but she's pretty much flailing. And then last we have Sasha, and Sasha is the in-law. Sasha has married their brother, Cord. Sasha is a, an artist from Rhode Island who finds herself living in this massive limestone on pineapple where nobody really wants her. How do they strike a balance between uh, what we would now call privilege these days and doing something good in the world? Well, 
I think at the beginning of the book, none of them are at all striking a balance. They are oblivious to much of their privilege, or in some ways they feel burdened by their privilege, which is actually even worse. Over the course of the novel, Georgiana has a moral reckoning, and she begins to think about what her money might be able to do in the world, um, her understanding of what money can do, i.e. give it away, give to foundations, become a philanthropist, is in some ways a little simple and shallow, but it's a great first step towards becoming good. Let me ask you about uh, a party scene and, and to read from it. Georgiana is invited uh, to a Russian dance hall in Brighton Beach. Group gets together on a bus. She sits next to, I think it was a grade school acquaintance named Curtis, uh, who says you know, notices all the people in the room from Brooklyn Heights or perhaps the Upper East Side, and they're dressed uh, in, in costumes, ridiculing uh, Russian immigrants, he thinks. Can I get you to read some of their dialogue? We'll note it begins with a profanity. We will uh, put a costume on that. you, Curtis. You don't know me. Of course I know you. You're a rich real estate brat living off your trust fund, only dimly aware that an entire world exists outside the coddled 1%. <laughs> oh, so you live in Zuccotti Park? You went to the School of Hard Knocks? Didn't you go to Princeton? Oh, so you don't live off a trust fund? I work for a not-for-profit providing healthcare for developing countries, Georgiana said icily. And who pays your rent? I own. And your rich parents bought that apartment? My grandparents left me money, not that it's your business. And how did they make that money? Well, some of it they inherited. So your family got rich off being rich. You are an ass. I probably am, but at least I'm self-aware enough to know it. Have fun ridiculing people who didn't come over on the Mayflower. Ooh, that's tough stuff. How do you make people care about either of them? <laughs> um, well, I think at first they might be a love to hate, but then as the novel goes on, I'm hoping they're a love to love. Yeah. Let me ask you a question that I, I think I would have posed to Truman Capote if I ever had the chance. How's that for a preface? I love it. <laughs> Are you concerned that some of your neighbors might read this novel and say either, why the hell did you put that in there? Or why in the hell didn't you put me in there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can definitely hear all of my neighbors sighing and saying, there goes the neighborhood. Because to be honest, one of the things I've done with Brooklyn Heights in this book is I have exaggerated it. I've turned up the volume on the place. Yeah. And the reality is, is that every Tuesday when I go grocery shopping at Gristiti's, where I use my mother's senior citizen discount to save money, the grocery store is full of normal people. But reading this book, it would make you think that it was entirely socialites and celebrities. On the other hand, I don't think any of my neighbors can be too mad at me because worst case scenario, I just raise their property values. <laughs> I don't want to slide past this. You use your mother's discount card? I do. I mean, she was living with us when we got it, and so it's just tied to my key fob. My mother is gone now, and I still use her state of Illinois uh, voter's registration, but that's different somehow, okay? That's different, but what I really want is I really want my mom's Costco card. Well, just rifle through her things. <laughs> um, I want to get back to your characters, because at some point, the easy jokes seem to recede, and we begin to see them as full human beings who are maybe occasionally clueless 
but there's something human beating in their hearts. Yes, absolutely. I think they all have preconceived notions of one another, especially the way that the two sisters by blood, Georgiana and Darley, regard Sasha. Mm -hmm. But as the novel goes on, they start to wear each other down. They start to open up to one another. Sometimes that backfires, but as they get to know each other, they, in each other's eyes, become less caricatures and, and more real people. Yeah. I, I must say I find a lot of contemporary novels, and I say this with respect, polemical. I appreciate the fact that yours is not. Well, I think we all are good and we're all bad and we're all trying to do our best and sometimes we're selfish and these characters are no exception. Jenny Jackson, her novel, Pineapple Street. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at betterhelp.com NPR to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom-tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top-10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.